Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Um, it, it is awesome to be in the house of the Lord. It's awesome that you are here. Um, we're starting a new series. We'll be here for three weeks, counting today, and the series is called Collide. And I don't know about you, but what I've noticed in our culture is it seems like that each each day, and almost like it just moment by moment, when you start observing the culture, things be, are starting to become more hostile of Christianity. Things seem to be, okay, now what was, what was absolutely cool, like even two, three, four years ago, it seems like that now those days are kind of fading away. Am I the only one to recognize this? Raise your hand just if, if you also see that. So most of us. And yet it seems like in the day and age that, that we are right now, as, as things around our culture are now kind of turning away from the, the Christian belief, I think that us as Christians need to go back to the Word of God in a setting that is honestly, that is perfect for what we're going through right now. So uh, at the end of 2014, and just I'm very much observant of the culture and and. And everything that's going on, I try to be as much as I can. I try and stay balanced and not lean to the left or lean to the right because, you know, ultimately Jesus is not really on either side. Jesus is Jesus, okay? So I think at the end of the day, what I really pressed into, and I said, God, what is it that our church, if we're going forward, how do we look like Jesus in a, in, around a culture that doesn't necessarily look like Jesus anymore? I realize that's a big statement. I realize that's a big statement, and maybe you don't completely agree. So this series, not that in three weeks we'll be able to settle all of the, all of the, the things that I just brought to your mind, but I'm just letting you know this series is really a turning point for the rest of the year. This, ter- this series is kind of, it's a turning point to say, okay, what is it that we can do as Christians? What behavior should we have in our life in, in, a, in a culture that seems to be turning away from the Christian belief? What is it that we should do? What, what posture should we take? What should we take? Should we retreat? And yet, the best answer for that is going to the Word of God. In, in the, the text that we're going to see today, and I, I welcome you to open up your Bible to Acts chapter 6. Many times what happens, specifically when we're reading the New Testament, is we're not educated enough as to what's going on in their culture. So we read it with a mindset of, well, yeah, this is great, and these, this is Jesus is teaching this, and I realize they crucified Jesus, and now the Apostle Paul comes into the mix, and he has wonderful teaches, teachings, and he's kind of encouraging and discouraging certain behavior within the churches. And yet one of the things that gets lost in all of that is the culture that the New Testament was birthed into was anti-Christian. The same culture that at the time, and really the, the controlling people, the Romans being the ones who controlled the, 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 that whole region of the Middle East at that time, they did not like Christianity. Remember, if you would please, they were partly responsible in the crucifixion of Jesus. So even in all of the, the writings of the New Testament, we have to understand that in that culture... They were living so counterculturally, and it brought opposition from the outside. 
They were living counterculturally. They weren't just streamlining. They weren't doing the same thing as culture. As a matter of fact, they would actually govern their lives by some beliefs that was so counterculturally that they would start to be persecuted. But here's kind of where it started. Just kind of catch you up into where we're going to be in Acts chapter 6. Jesus, at this point, of course, has been uh, brutally uh, killed Brutally murdered on the cross on our behalf, shed blood for us so that we could be right with God. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. And that eternal life is is available to you and I, those of us who receive that. Well, Jesus had already died at this point. He had resurrected and he had ascended back to heaven. But the events that we see in Acts 6 are not years later. They're months later after The brutal death of Jesus, months later. People would would still be living with the horror of seeing the, the brutality of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So when these people would step forth, and and they did step forth, as a matter of fact, the group, you know that the Jesus' original 12 disciples, right? They started with 12, and then Judas did his thing, and then Judas betrayed Christ, and then Judas found a tree and a rope, and we know how his story ended, that, you know, he hung himself, and he's away, and then it started with 12, it went to 11, then they said, wow, we need another person to fulfill this role. That would be the last time in the Bible that they cast lots. And they cast lots for, which was a Jewish practice, they cast lots for the person who would fill that place. So they went from 12 to 11 to 12. And yet, then we see this amazing thing happens. God releases His Holy Spirit amongst the people, and He gives them this message. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we bear witness to this. We live in the ends of the earth right now. So the fact that we are gathered here today, or the fact that that you're listening online today, you bear witness to the truth of this word in Acts 1, 8. And yet, even after that, then the Holy Spirit's released at the day of Pentecost. So at this point, there's there's 120 people, and they're meeting together, and now they're they're starting to gather. But now the day of Pentecost comes, and they go go from, and now this is in, in Acts 2, 40, One, it says that, this is not a quote, but uh, just giving you a reference of the the timeline and what happened with the amount of people being reached by the gospel. Now, uh, from the day of Pentecost, they had 120. Peter preaches this message, and 3,000 people were added to their number that day. That's quality preaching right there. That's good stuff. And yet, even in the midst of that, Acts 2.41, then we see in Acts 2.47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. So now the church is, is starting to be formed. Now the church is starting to live counterculturally. Everybody else is doing their thing, and yet the church, the people of God, the followers of Jesus Christ, are now all gathered, and they're starting to live communally. Many of them had left their own family, and now they're living with these, now they're, they're not living with, but basically living alongside and doing life with these new followers of Jesus. Their lives were totally different. They look nothing like our lives now, shamefully to us. Nothing. We live lives so isolated from one another. We do. 
And yet, if we're to get back to the purest expression, and honestly, this is just a side note, if we're to be the people in the 21st century that Jesus Christ needs us to be, we need to look a lot more like the, the, the new century church, or excuse me, the, the first century church, the, the church that you see in the book of Acts, rather than what you see today. We have to get better. We have to get back. Not fall into worldly traps, but we get, have to get back to the Word of God and, and live our lives accordingly. Acts 4.4 says, And the number of men grew to 5,000. This is weeks later. 12 to 11 to 12 to 120 to 3,000 added to their number daily. Now it's 5,000. Weeks later. Now, the reason why it was starting to grow isn't because the pastor stood up and said, I'm going to give you a piece of candy, and if you come back next Sunday and join my church, I'm going to give you a piece of candy. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you this, I'm going to give you this. It wasn't that. Their leader had been crucified. Their leader had been crucified. But then also he had resurrected. And it was the resurrection of Christ, the one that we celebrated. We celebrate week after week after week, but we put a high on on Easter Sunday. And it's that event, the resurrection, that the people started to realize Jesus is God. And they started to live their lives accordingly. And they started to live counter-culturally. As they press on, Acts 5.14, it says, More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Now up to this point, it's maybe, possibly, this is a little bit conjecture, but just thinking in terms of the numbers and now, where it's not just men, but now we're actually tallying up men, women, and children. This group up to this point could be 10, 11, 12,000 people weeks after the resurrection. Weeks. Weeks. And yet, what we're also going to see, it says this in, in Acts 5, 38 and 39. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, this is what people said. When they started to look at the movement of Christ and, they, and the movement of Christ's followers, they're like, this is the advice they were starting to give because the Christians were starting to face just a little bit of persecution. Just a little bit. But this is the advice they started to give. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But get this. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. Got some good news for you. They were not able to stop those men. And it wasn't a promise of, it wasn't just a promise of something that allowed these people to live radically different than, than the culture around them. It wasn't just a promise of something. It was an event. It was the resurrection of Jesus, that they had walked and they had talked with Jesus. They had saw this brutal and public crucifixion. Now he resurrects, and now he, as he ascends, he says, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and now as the Holy Spirit of God invades people's lives, they are radically different. They're radically different. We're called to be different as well. The gospel first went to the Jews. This is important. The gospel first went to the Jews. So it only makes sense that the, that the Christians in that day and age would first be persecuted by the Jews. As a matter of fact, it was the Romans and the Jews working in partnership who crucified Jesus. 
So as we jump into our text in Acts 6, it's with the, it's with the mindset and the belief and understanding that the culture that, that, the, that the gospel was birthed into is not that different than ours. It's not that different. But here's what we have to resist. Please look at me. Here's what we have to resist. We have to resist the traps that the world puts before us. We have to resist the traps of of aligning yourself with a certain political party and demonizing the other political party, and I don't care which one you're talking about. We have to resist the temptation to make the faith something other than what it is. We have to resist the temptation to mirror the culture because the moment that you mirror the culture, you will not be able, you forfeit the opportunity to help redeem that culture. That's one of the great purposes of the gospel is is redeeming people, but then also people living amongst the culture to redeem that culture so that we could show people around us what a godly marriage looks like, what godly kids looks like, what a Christ-centered church looks like, what a life looks like when it is completely surrendered to Jesus. Acts 6, verse 1 through 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained that the Hebraic Jews, uh, against the Hebraic Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn their responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's delivering the Word of God. That is, the, that is preaching and teaching the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem did what? It increased or multiplied rapidly. And a large number of priests came to be obedient to the faith. See, I love it when the Word of God says that even religious people became Christians. Even religious people. People thought they had it all figured out, and then all of a sudden they realized, wow, this whole Jesus thing is for real. And they became obedient to the faith. They became followers of Jesus. This is the first problem that really happens within the church. This is the first problem. And I have to tell you, This is a good problem to have. If there's a problem that could be had, and I tell you this just from church leadership, I am faced with all kinds of problems that aren't problems. I'm faced with all kinds of discussions, and I'm faced with all kinds of concerns. This shouldn't be concerns. They shouldn't be. As a matter of fact, I get presented with a lot of of ancillary issues, and they're ancillary issues. They're not the issues of the day. They're the issues of someone's opinion. And all of a sudden, it's now those things just suck the life out of the leadership of the church. They suck the life out of me and people like me. 
who are called to lead. If there's an issue that you're going to have in the church, let's have this one. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. First thing that that we would see here is, I love the fact that there's transparency, that the church, it wasn't perfect, it's not perfect, no leader is perfect, and they recognize it, and they, and they they tell us for the ages. There's the first problem in the church is saying, you know what, we failed. When Luke was pinning this, it was a declaration, you know what, the early church failed. Church leadership today, going to fail. Future leaders, I believe there's some in this room, we're going to fail. But my hope is that our response would be the same as this response. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. See, there's a, this, because the, the widows, this is somebody's grandmother. This is someone's grandmother who's not getting food. That's a big deal. And now, not only is this such a big deal, you see, this is when leadership really, really matters. This is when leadership really, really matters. Because they, in this moment, they had an opportunity. They could ignore it. They could ignore it and say, uh, somebody else will take care of it. They, they could, uh, somebody else will take care of it. But this is such a weighty issue. This is actually a racial issue in the early church. Because the Hebraic Jews, no, they would have been, uh, they would have been descendants of Ezra. And, and, the, and one of the three exile groups who, who came back that we talked about during the Catalyst series. These would be descendants of those people, the Hebraic Jews. They're the more conservative of the Jews. But the Grecian Jews, now, now the, the, excuse me, the Hebraic Jews, they would be more of the majority group. The Grecian Jews would be the secondary group. They would be the minority group. The Grecian Jews, would be a, they would be a little bit more, or excuse me, a little bit less conservative than the Hebraic Jews because the Grecian Jews, not only, they, they lived by the, the Jewish faith, but they were influenced by, uh, by where they lived because they would most likely have lived all around the Mediterranean Rim. Instead of just in Jerusalem or in Judea, they would have lived around the Mediterranean Rim, which was controlled by the Greeks. <clears throat> and when the Greeks controlled a, an area... They dominated that area, and they made everything fit into Greek culture. So now you have the conservatives and the liberals. Honestly, the conservatives would be the, the Hebraic Jews. They were very conservative, and we've got to do this, and we're, we're about the word, and you can't have any of this. And then the Grecian Jews on the other side, which is why it's, it's a racial issue, they wouldn't be the descendants of Ezra. Now, they would actually have some, some Greek in them. And the Hebraic Jews would look at the Greek Jews, some of them, as their enemy. Sellouts. Not, not as conservative as I am. You need to be more conservative. You need to be more liberal. You need to be more progressive. <clears throat> Leadership matters. Leadership matters. And, and, and I love this, how it says the number of the disciples was increasing, and the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. 
Like a complaint is brought up. And in this, the reason why leadership matters so much is because when, when a complaint is brought to the forefront, they have, honestly, they have, to, they have to evaluate the situation, they have to make a decision on the situation, and then they have to pillow their head at night just knowing that they made the best decision with the information that they had. No different than my responsibility, no different than church leadership responsibilities, honestly. But they, they go through and they evaluate the situation and they say, okay, wow, that is exactly... that." This is really a problem. This is really a problem. Because now there's someone's grandmother who doesn't have food. Let's fix the problem. That's what leadership should do. Leadership should sit there and be driven by the love of Christ and by the love of other people. And they would sit and evaluate and say, you know what? I'm called to love all these people, not a certain amount of people. I'm not called to love the Hebraic Jews or the Grecian Jews. I'm not called to love them. I'm called to love all people. And that's when leadership really matters. As a matter of fact, I don't believe that they could make a decision, a leadership decision, without knowing the people. They can't. So what did they do? They evaluated the situation. They said, wow, let me look around. This is a legitimate concern. Someone's grandmother is not being fed. And there was no public assistance. There was no food stamps. There's no Medicare. There's no Medicaid. There's no Peach Care. There's no Peach State, whatever else they have around here now. There was none of that. What a prime opportunity for the church to be the church. As a matter of fact, in that culture, if somebody was a widow, the only way that they could provide for themselves within their family is if their sons were able to take the responsibility of caring for her. Or maybe for her to marry, but in, in the gap of that, she was all by herself. And in their culture, women didn't have rights like they do now. They weren't respected like they are now. And praise God that we've, we've moved, moved forward with a lot of those things. And a lot of that, that redemption has already happened in our country. But the first takeaway is leadership matters. The daily distribution of food... The church is, is stepping up and fulfilling the, the need of the day. That's what we're supposed to do as a church. But the first need is the, is the preaching of the Word of God, delivering the Word of God. Because it was the Word of God that Peter used over and over and over that now it would just, the numbers grew and people received the gospel. And the movement of God, and really that's one of the underlying themes of, of uh, the book of Acts is just this whole Line and seeing just the multiplication of the church. Lexi, if you could put Leadership Matters on the screen. Thank you. John 10, verse 12 says this, The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. Why do I share that? Because the hired hand is not a leader. The hired hand is not a leader. The hired hand doesn't care about the people. The hired hand doesn't care about the flock. Because the hired hand, when the wolves come, and I have to tell you, even in the size of church that we have today, wolves are coming. 
As we, are in, as we are increasing in number, the wolves are coming, and the leadership and the fortitude of leadership in this church is going to be challenged. And I have to tell you, it's already been challenged. But the hired hand is not a leader. It's not a leader. Hired hand doesn't care about the flock. When the wolves come, hired hand's out of there. Let us not be a church that's like that. Let us not be a church that when we see the, the, the opposition from the culture, that we basically just run away and hide. That we as a people will stand up, each one of us, getting beyond the idea of church leadership, but the leadership in our home, when, when the wolves come within your home, and your kids are being presented with things that are absolutely not true, not true in accordance to the Word of God, don't act like a hired hand. Act like a shepherd. Follow our good shepherd, is what Jesus calls himself in John 10. Indeed, he is our chief shepherd, as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5 and 4. But the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. When he sees the wolf coming, and the wolves are coming, as culture gets more anti-Christian, the wolves are coming. Not trying to scare you. We all, we all have about 85% of us, probably statistically, all of us agree that, that what I just said is true. Okay? I'm not trying to impose fear upon you. I'm trying to have all of us rally together and say, wow, I need to live my life in accordance with the Word of God. I need to get back to what the Bible says. And maybe the reason why the culture is opposing us is a great thing. Because we're supposed to be living counterculturally anyway. But leadership matters. It matters in your home, and it matters in the church. And it mattered here. I love the way that they handled the issue. It says in verse 1 that, that the complaint came, that, that the, the widows were being overlooked in their daily distribution of food. And then it says at, the, at verse 7, this is, okay, here's the, here's the problem, here's the issue. And then now, in, in, from verses 2 to 6, you see, okay, how are we going to solve the issue? And then in verse 7, you see the, the resolution for the issue, and the church grew, which created the issue to begin with, and the church grew after that, after the issue was taken care of. Now, I will tell you this. Um, two words, in really, in the first two verses... In verse 1, uh, the word distribution is taken from a Greek word. Uh, it, it, the Greek word is diokonia, and there is a, a Greek verb, and in NIV that I read for verse 2, at the end of verse 2, it says to wait on tables. Uh, possibly your translation says serve, and I believe that's actually the better translation. Um, the, uh, the KJV and I believe the NET and the NASB and the ESV all say serve, and I believe that's a better translation. And, and that word is diokoneo. The only reason I even mention this is not because to fool you into thinking that I know Greek, because I don't. Um, those words are, are the root word of the word deacon. Those, those words are, are the Greek, uh, taken from the, the Greek root word that we get the word deacon. So many times, and, and even I believe, that these were the first seven deacons, although they were never given that title. In 1 Timothy 3.12, the word deacon is 
diokonoas, or diokonoas, and that is the word deacon. But you, you look at the beginning of those, uh, where it starts at dia, all of those start that way, means servant, deacon. That's going to become very important by the end of this talk. Second thing that you see, and just I, I really brought this out already. I'm not going to belabor the point. The second point is this. Healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. Now you may sit back and say, wow, this is so obvious. But I have to tell you some conversations that I've had amongst, amongst our fellowship here. Part of our fellowship here and the tendency is when you have a, a church our size is to think, you know what? I love a small church. I want the church to stay small. I want it to feel like family. I want it to feel like family too, by the way. You know, I want it to, I want it to stay small. I want it to be small. I like a small church. I don't want a big church. You get a big church and it waters down the message and blah, 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 and all that not, isn't necessarily true. And yet, I want us to see that one of the themes all through the, the book of Acts is the multiplication of disciples. And healthy things grow. As the Holy Spirit is released amongst that group of people, it says in verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. And then at the end of uh, verse 7, it says, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You see growth on the beginning, and you see growth at the end of our text. Growth is something that just has to happen. It just has to happen. We have to continue to grow. We have to continue to invite our friends. We have to continue to, to live counterculturally and show the world that there's something about Jesus that should compel them to listen to our message. But they have to see it in our life instead of just hear it with our words. They have to see it with our life. And to do this, if you would go to the right in your Bible, just a, a couple of just a couple of documents to Second Corinthians five. This I want to be, and I believe to be very practical with for you in your life. And you say, Well, Pastor, how do we do it? How do we I mean, how do we do it? Okay, great. You said that we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to live counterculturally, and it's going to take more than a year to explain what that term means and how to live it out. So I'm not going to be able to answer all those questions today. But what can we do today to facilitate where we're trying to go? I'm glad you asked. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16. It says, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. He has committed to you and I this message of reconciliation. Here's what that means in your home. That means 
If you have been given the message of reconciliation, that means when somebody does you wrong, you can't just write them off. That means when somebody says something about you, you can't just avoid them at work like, like they have the plague. No, our calling for all of us as Christians is a ministry of reconciliation. That means if you're going through marital issues, that means your, your ministry is to reconcile that relationship because there is no other relationship on earth that when a man or woman are, are married, there is no other relationship like it. And that is the way that God entailed it to be. So when we go through, and we all go through marital struggles, when we fight for our marriage... We, in essence, are showing our friends and our co-workers and other, other members of our fellowship, you know what, I'm not only fighting for my marriage, I'm fighting for the gospel to be true in my life. That is the ministry of reconciliation, bringing things together. That means that, that when you go to work and you have somebody who does you wrong, that means you just can't avoid them anymore. You can't. Because when, when somebody commits their life to Jesus, we live the way that he wants us to do, which means it's countercultural. The cultural way is this. If somebody says something bad about, about you, that means you double down and say something twice, twice as bad about them. Am I right? Isn't that the worldly way to do it? But like, you did me wrong. That's cool. I'm just going to lash out. I'm going to do twice, twice as much to you as you did to me. The world way of living is unforgiveness. They have offended me. I've got this place in my heart. I'm holding on to it. He or she has offended me. I don't care what they say. I don't care what acts they've tried to, to try to make it right. I'm holding on to that hurt, and I'm going to victimize them with that hurt. And that's malice. And that's not birthed in, in a spirit-filled nature. That's birthed out of a sinful nature. And the New Testament is absolutely clear on that. That means that we can't look at our neighbor across the street and say, wow, I want every bit of worldly possessions that they have. Wow, I want to live as worldly as everybody else. I want to chase all these material things. I want my life to be about material things. Greed and envy. We're living counter-culturally. Instead, we say, you know what? I am trying to live my life as a ministry of reconciliation. So now, I'm going to go out and not spend all those funds on things that I want, things that my kids want. I'm going to say no to my kids, and I'm going to actually take those funds, and I'm going to send them into a, a, a ministry or fund some sort of a widow and orphans or some sort of way of doing it. There's just a billion ways to, to give your money to something to say, you know what, I'm not just going to live for me. I'm going to live my life, and I'm going to give my part of my life and my finances to be a ministry of reconciliation. This Christ is making all things new, but he makes them new through us. He makes them new through us. We've all been given this ministry of reconciliation. Pressing in just a little bit farther. And it says at the end of verse 19, He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made Him who knew no sin to be the sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In a day and age that we live right now, we cannot be 
diplomats of the gospel. A diplomat says, hey, can't we just meet in the middle? I know you're, I know you're a Buddhist, but can't we just meet in the middle? I, I know that you're, that you're not a follower of Jesus, and as a matter of fact, you don't believe a single thing that I believe, but can't we just meet in the middle? I, I, yeah, I, I know that you're, you're wanting to do uh, all of those things, and I know that you're way into like giving your money to different funds, but yet you're, you're not actually participating or supporting your local church. We, we can't just say, well, I'll just meet you in the middle. You see, the word, the word now in our culture is the word tolerance. That's the word tolerance. Say, well, can't we just all meet in the middle? You see, that would be, if Christ were to say, you are my diplomats, we would, we would all come to the table and say, well, let's meet in the middle. But he doesn't say that. What does he say in that text? What's the word that he uses instead? What's the word? Ambassadors. He said, now you are ambassadors. That means you, follower of Jesus Christ. That means you're living in a foreign land, but you're not of the foreign land. That means you're living in the foreign land, but the way that you live, the ethic that you live by, the way of thinking that you have, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the way that you govern your relationships, the very thing that is the foundation of your marriage, it's not of the world. You're an ambassador of Jesus Christ in a fallen world. And he is making his appeal through us. Think how humbling that is. That God is making his appeal to the world through us. Not just the things we say. Not just the, not just the verses that we put on social media. Not just the, oh, yeah, I, oh, I found this and this is great. I want to share this. I haven't actually read that for myself in the Bible, but I'm just going to share, 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 every, you know, somebody else's stuff. Oh, somebody else is having a spiritual awakening, so I'm just going to share this. I love this. I want people to love this. It's deep. It's got to be deeper than that. Hey, that's great. Share scripture. I do it all the time. I do it all the time. But it's more so in the way that you live, not just the things you say, and that God is making his appeal to this fallen world through us. We are ambassadors. We are Citizens of another kingdom implanted onto this kingdom. He didn't call us to be diplomats. We have the ministry of reconciliation. And that's just the continuing work of the gospel in our lives. One of the things that I think is, is moving about this text specifically um, from Acts 6 our main text, one of the things that I think is, is so moving is, is the church is just, it's rocking and rolling. Everything's going great. Everything's going great. The numbers are coming, and now they have this problem, and now they resolve the problem, and they appoint, by the way, the, the seven people who were appointed all have Greek names. So it's believed that the, the Grecian widows were actually the ones who, who were lacking food. So now, as, as just a, a sign of assurance for those Greek widows, now they've actually appointed seven, believed to be seven men, to be the deacons in that day and age to say, you know what, we hear your problem, we see your problem, we're addressing the problem, we love you. We love you. We're not ignoring the problem. So there's the ministry of reconciliation 
there as well. But even in the midst of that, and the church was going great. And I would say this, in the words of Winston Churchill, I love this quote, success is not final, failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Success is not final. You see, the church was doing great. It was doing great, but then a problem arose. Okay, so success is not final. It isn't that they could just say, boys, put your feet up. We just launched this thing. Everything's going to be great. Can somebody bring me some wine? Come on over here. I need some some bread. I'm kind of hungry. Let's just put our feet up and let's just watch this thing go. No. The disciples, the ones who walked with Jesus, they were in it. They were in it up to their necks. This was their life. And yet, in the words of Winston Churchill, success is not final. And yet, failure is not fatal. Failure is not fatal. Because everything was rocking and rolling for the disciples, for the early church. The leaders stepped up and said, because leadership matters, they said, you know what? This has got to change. I know healthy things are going to grow, but we're going to have to change with that growth. We've been given a ministry of, of reconciliation. So now, just continuing on, he says, what are you going to do when you fail? What are you going to do when you fail? The fourth takeaway is failures, 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 failures. Well, one thing that you don't necessarily know about Winston Churchill, not only was he a great leader, but maybe for you men, maybe this would be a good study for you. But here's, here's something, some amazing facts about Winston Churchill that gives him credence that maybe we should listen to him a little bit more. His father actually hated him. He didn't have a good relationship with his father. His, his relationship with his father was strained from basically birth. He never measured up. He publicly disgraced his own son as he was growing up. He went into military school. He was a POW in, in South Africa, but he was also known as a hero because of it. He made a bad decision in World War II and cost over 100,000 people their lives. And then he became a hated enemy within his own homeland. You see the up? You see the down? About to see another one. He became an outcast for going public with his feelings against Hitler's Germany and Nazism. But then he became a hero when he was part of the coalition to take care of it. And he's remembered as being a great hero today. For you and I, success is not final, but failure is not fatal. Just because everything is, seems to be going okay and my, I've got some money in the bank and I've got this and I've got a nice house and I've got a good income and I'm able to travel and I'm able to do these things. Success is not final. You could have a day that's coming. But maybe if you're prone to failures if, as I have been in large parts of my life, they're not fatal. God's grace is sufficient for all of our needs. These failures, I'd mentioned this was a a racial issue. This was a racial issue. And yet in that day and age, the church did what the church should do, to stand up for those that are marginalized and say, you know what, nobody else is speaking for them, but we will. Nobody else notices these, these widows over here that are being neglected, but the church does. That's what the church should be about. The church should be more about that than than what I consider American churchianity, 
where it cares all about itself. It, calls, it cares all about its, its likes and dislikes and the color of the carpet, and I like this, and I like that, and I don't like this, and I wish you wouldn't have said this, and I wish, it wish this wouldn't have happened like this, and if somebody would have made a better decision, this wouldn't have happened. That's American churchianity, and we have so bought into that lie. We've so, 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 so bought into that lie. And we've so taken our eyes off of Jesus and we've put it on the things that we like, specifically in our culture, specifically in our day. We will never be a part of a redemption of our culture if we're fighting with ourselves. Never. Never. Not going to happen. Can't happen. Till we humble ourselves. I'm going to fly through this. Uh, this also is, is very much where we are um, as, as a church. And some of this is going to be a plea. I hope this would be a place of application for you and your life. And this is really what happens in this text. So I just want to kind of bring this to the forefront. And, and just with some very simplistic words. Uh, when, you're, when you have a small church, the leadership is a generalist. When you have a small church, that means that the, that the pastor is going to be the one who visits, the pastor is going to be the preacher, pastor is going to be the counselor, pastor is going to greet at the front door, pastor is going to make the coffee, pastor is going to cut the grass, pastor is going to vacuum the floor, pastor is going to do this, pastor is going to do that. In a small church, you can get away with that. It'll wear a pastor out, but you can get away with that. They're called to serve. That's cool. You can do that. But you know what I've found? Small churches die. Because small churches exist for themselves. And the local church should exist to be a ministry of reconciliation to make our plea to the lost world to bring them into the fellowship. So I want us to be a church that is a growing church. But to do that, we have to be specialist. To be a growing church, we have to be specialist. That means I need to do what my primary gifts call me to do, but also means that you need to do what your primary gifts are calling you to do. That means that every single person who's in this room has a responsibility. We are a growing church, and I praise God for it. When we were just a small church, we can get away with somebody else doing everything. Those days are gone. We cannot progress as a church. We cannot do what it is that we're called to do. We cannot continue to, to move forward in growth and to sustain the growth that we have until some of you step up and take a mantle of leadership in some area or another. But I want you to be the specialist in the area that you're supposed to be serving in that you're supposed to be serving in, what your gifts are, what your natural gifts are. We can't coast anymore and just say, you know what? Chad's got it. We pay a staff for that. I've heard that so many times. We pay a staff for that. We pay, no, we pay, we got, we, no, 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 no. Youth ministry, no. That's where we got Keith. Keith's here. He's our youth minister. You know what? Keith needs a team. And you know who he needs? Maybe you. He said, no, 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 we, no, we got a director of children's ministry. She does a great job, and we even cover it with, man, she serves everywhere. And then we think we can just run her ragged. No, 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 no. She needs a team. She needs you. 
You say, you know what? Isn't it the pastor's job to go do this, this, and this? Possibly, but if you have the gift of mercy, you can just as well go to a hospital visit as I can. I would love to go with you. I'd love to show you how to. I would love for you to be the first person that they would call. I would. We cannot settle for status quo anymore. If we are to be the light in our culture, we are, and to be a growing church that we are, and to sustain the growth that we have and that we have been seeing, we have to be the specialist of our own area of ministry. Some of you know what your gifts are. Most of you would say that you don't. So I would say this, something that you've heard recently in a past message, then do what is right in front of you. Then do what is right in front of you. Catalyst, week 12, it's online. Just do what is right in front of you. Three quick takeaways, and then I have some awesome news to share. Three very, very quick takeaways. Lead well if you are in a position of leadership. Lead well, but love even better. Whether it's in your home or whether it's in the church. Lead well and love better. Do your part. Find your fit in your area of service. Each and every one of us. And then be that message of reconciliation. And invite an unchurched or de person so that they can receive the gospel. 